We are in Genesis chapter 6. We, we just finished up Genesis chapter 5. And let me just read the end of Genesis chapter 5 so we remember the context. We, were go, we went through the, the lives of, of the descendants of Seth. So, there was, so, so Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain slew, slays Abel. Abel was the child of blessing. Cain went the way of rebellion. Remember, Cain's rebellion was to go his own way and do his own thing. And then in chapter 5, we learn about these descendants of Seth, and it finishes up with, it, it, there's Methuselah. Methuselah gives birth, is the father of Lamech, and Lamech is the father of Noah. Now, none of these patriarchs in this line of Seth that we read, none of the names of these men in the line of Seth died in the flood. Because Lamech actually dies before his father, Methuselah, dies. And Methuselah dies the year that the flood came. So none of these patriarchs is going to die in the flood. And Noah himself would be delivered. So at the end of Genesis chapter 5, it says, Noah was 500 years old, and he became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth. Okay, so let's let's take a look now in in Luke, in, in uh, Genesis chapter six, verse one. And it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh." Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually." So I have studied this portion at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and there's two views on what's believed to be going on here, two views by Bible scholars. So the interpretation that I am giving you is not my own interpretation. So I've studied what scholars say, and scholars really come down in two camps. Uh, One group says that these sons of God were the sons of the line of Seth, the godly line. And the daughters of men signifies that these were the daughters of Cain's line. And there was a marriage between the two. And the Cain lineage started corrupting the Sethites, the Seth lineage, the good lineage, the godly lineage. Because remember, in chapter 5, we said when Seth was born, men started to call on the name of the Lord. That is one view. That is not the prevailing view. I would say that the Bible scholars are about five to one. The one being what I just told you, that this, this, uh, these sons of God are the line of the godly line and the, the daughters of men are of the, the ungodly line. And, and uh, um, it's, it's, it's interesting that the prevailing view is this, that when it says the sons of God, it means fallen angels that there were fallen angels that started to marry human being women, uh, that they looked good to them, and they started having offspring that were called Nephilim, 
that we're these superhuman-like creatures. Now, why would Bible scholars fall into something like that and believe that? Well, it turns out when you start reading about it, it's really quite interesting because every time in the Old Testament that it said that the sons of God, the sons of God, it was always in reference in the Old Testament to angels. This would be the only exception in the entire Old Testament if this were not speaking of fallen angels. Angels fell, it says one-third of the angels fell with Satan. We talked about this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. When, and, and we read about verses when, when Satan was thrown down because of his disobedience. One-third, it says, the Bible says one-third of the angels fell with him. So they had already fallen. And some people will argue that this cannot be, it cannot have anything to do with angels because angels... Uh, uh, don't marry. And here it says that men are marrying. And they will take of this verse in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. Jesus said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus was speaking about marriage because the Pharisees had asked him, Whose who's, uh, uh, wife is this going to be in heaven? Because she had seven husbands while she was on earth. And Jesus said, in heaven, they're going to be like angels. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, people marry on earth. But he said in heaven, they won't marry. Angels in heaven don't marry. He never said about angels that had fallen to earth. So that's where the other camp says, no, in spite of that verse in Matthew, you can still certainly have this type of thing. In spite of that. And then, then there are other references here, particularly... One of the references here, so, so that you understand what, what they're talking about, is in Jude, Jude chapter 1, verse 14. So Jude actually only has one chapter. And, and uh, um, ch- verse 14 of Jude says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, remember we read about Enoch last time, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So there was a prophecy that Enoch said that destruction was coming, and it is believed that Enoch was speaking against this this hybrid race of people. This is actually more vividly produced for us in in uh, in in Second Peter, in the book of Second Peter, chapter two, Second Peter chapter two verse four, for God, listen to this: God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So you see that there were these fallen angels that they're talking about in this context. So, so uh, uh, we, we, we see this, this actual very pattern. And there's also another verse that speaks about this type of thing in, in, uh, in Jude chapter 1, verse 6. It says, And angels who did not keep their domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality 
and went after strange flesh and exhibited, are exhibited as examples in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what Bible scholars do is they really love the Word of God and they will start piecing together the different verses. If you don't apply this passage to that portion in Genesis, it's hard to find where this is going to apply. There are angels that didn't keep their domain. They abandoned it. They fell into sexual immorality, much like Sodom and Gomorrah fell into sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is actually the outcome of disobedience to the Lord. The outcome of not obeying Him is falling into sexual immorality of all sorts. This sexual immorality was not homosexuality. This sexual immorality was heterosexual immorality. But between angels and human women. And angels were always, always given, anytime you see an angel named in, in the Bible, it always has a male name. And I know we like to portray women angels. There are no women angels in the Bible that we see. Maybe they're somewhere, but they're not listed in the Bible. All right? But they always had masculine names. Or they, they appeared as young men, like, like at the tomb of Jesus. They always appeared as men. And so that's the prevailing view. So you say, well, that's, that's kind of odd. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you find that odd. So now you can instruct God how to write, okay? And uh, uh, if, 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 that's, if that's really important to you, that, that you find this kind of odd. But, and it speaks of the Nephilim that were on earth in those days. These were wicked men that had this superhuman power. And that's in verse 4 of Genesis chapter, chapter 6. And it says, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now what happens is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used a particular word that was then translated as giants. So you will see in some translations this is translated as giants, but there is nowhere in there that it it presupposes giants. They may have been big men, but they were men of renown, and they were men of renown because of their sin. It says the Nephilim were on earth in those days. The Nephilim died off in the flood. God killed off that generation, that mixed generation. He destroyed it. He destroyed that line. Now, why would Satan want to have the line, the human being line, uh, 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 disrupted? And that's because of a prophecy that Satan heard. That God said, through the line of the woman will come someone who will crush your head. So what he wanted to do was interrupt the human line, to interrupt that, to have his demonic powers in that human line. And God was destroying now that human line. These were the men of renown. When men of renown, when the greatest sinners, the sinners become the men of renown in a society, there's a big problem. But what can we begin to learn from this? Well, let's look at one other thing. It says in verse 3, Then God said, this is Genesis chapter 6, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. From the time this was said to the time the flood hit was 120 years. Now, yes, life began to shorten. It went from these long lives... Then you see the, 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 the patriarchs like Abraham living these 120 type years, Moses living these 120 type years, and then he shortens it again in Psalm 90. He says, humans shall live, people shall live 70 years if due to strength 80, and that's exactly where we are now. But it was also 120 years because it took 
Noah 100 years to build the ark. So it's 120 years that there's further time for these people to repent. And this is not the ungodly line. This is the line that is, that is not been corrupted by these, these, uh, um, by, by these demonic forces. And you see that actually in, in, uh, in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 3.20, it mentions this. It says, Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So you look how much the New Testament brings to light for us the Old Testament. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safety through the water. So God gave 120 years of warning. 120 years of warning, trying to get more people to repent. And only eight people entered that ark. So that was Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives. That was it. But he gave plenty of time to repent to them. You say, God, why, why did that have to happen? Look at God is very patient. If you think that your patience is greater than God's patience, trust me, it is not. God's patience is utterly amazing. But I want to I look back at something here because what you see is you see something in marriages. So whether you take this as this, these scholars that say that this is the mixing of angelic lines, fallen angels with women, or it was just the Sethites with the Canaanites. The problem with the Sethites and the Canaanites because you have the sons of God, if that's the Sethites, with the daughters of men, and that's the Canaanites, why is it only the daughters of the Canaanites are marrying into the line of the Sethites? Why are not the men of the Canaanites marrying into the daughters of the Sethites? You don't see that. Again, this is another reason why scholars seem to to come down on the view that this is an angelic thing. But regardless of that, what I want to touch on here is marriage. So, my observation is the same as the observation of other commentary writers that I've, writ- that I've read about. So then you, now we have a lot of data points on this. And the observation is this. When you have a believer marry an unbeliever, the family worship ends there. The children generally will follow the pattern of the unbelieving parent. You say, oh, how can this be? You know, this person, they go to church with me. Yeah, they don't believe, but they still go to church. Just wait. Once you're married, they'll stop going to church with you. I've seen it many, many times. They want to go fishing. They want to do other things. They want to go to the football game. And what happens is the children start to go in that direction, not in the godly direction. And family worship ceases. There is no family worship. There is no gathering for family worship because that entity, whether it's the man or the woman who is not, who, who is not saved, that individual, that individual stops participating in these types of things. And that's why it is so dangerous to become affectionate with somebody who does not know the Lord. Because what happens is the hormones start kicking in and you start getting the natural affections, but now the person does not know the Lord. They do not have the life of God within them. And if you think they do, it's contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible says they are dead in their transgressions. They're absolutely dead spiritually. 
They have no life in them spiritually. They are separated from God. And so, so if, if we look, for example, in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial was an idol. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now, Paul says we are to relate with the world, we're to relate with people around us, but when we are to be bound in union, we have to be careful about that. And now, let me, let me tell you what I see happens. When believer starts thinking about marriage with an unbeliever, that believer will avoid me. They'll avoid me. Well, why do you think they avoid me? Because they know that I'm going to speak up on this thing. I'm going to do this. You mess around with the Word of God and think that you'll be the exception. I guarantee to you, you will lose. Because every word in the Bible that God has said has to come true. The world will move to make that that word come true. It has to happen. Your word will pass away. Your word means nothing. It will pass away. Your feeling means nothing compared to the Word of God. Your feelings will pass away. They will die with you. God's Word will remain. It is steadfast. It has to happen. Look in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He gives us more direct instruction in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16. For how do you know, O wife whether you will save your husband. Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this matter let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. The instruction to all the churches, that means to us, is this. Don't get involved in a marriage with an unbeliever. That means you don't date unbelievers, or else you'll end up in marriage with them. You don't mess around with this thing. This is the instruction to all the churches. You want to go against this? You'll be the one hurt. It's devastating. And there'll be a bunch of children hurt in the process too. I have seen many weeping women who have violated this. So this is something we can, we can actually learn from Genesis chapter 6. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. So this, these marriages between godly and ungodly. And then God says in verse 5, He says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the fallen state of mankind, meaning men and women. This is the fallen state of humankind. If you say, well, this is before the, the, the flood, you, you know, then he saved out this righteous generation. After the flood, it's not quite like that. Oh, yeah? How about Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, which was long after the flood? Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Can he be more explicit than that? The heart is more deceitful than all else. You want to know what's deceitful? It's our hearts. 
Our hearts are more deceitful than all else. They are desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's, the, that's, that's what the Scriptures tell us our heart is like. So in Genesis it says, He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. That is what human beings do with their hands. You see what they do on earth. But then he said, and every intent of their thoughts. That's what you and I don't see. The only thoughts that I know about are my own thoughts. And I am so glad that you don't have a little electronic reader where you can see on my forehead what my thoughts are. Or I'd be talking to you, you and you'd be like, look what he's thinking. You'd be shocked what goes through my mind. Absolutely shocked. I am so glad that you cannot read my heart. But to God, it's totally transparent. Now, it doesn't shock him because he's used to this. He's not pleased with it, but it doesn't shock him. God reads the thoughts, and this is what caught me. I, when, when, when I was presented with the gospel, the first verse I read was, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I turned to the young man, the young Navigators Campus ministry student, and I said, I'm not a sinner. I never robbed a bank. I never killed anybody. How could I be a sinner? Didn't do it with my hands. Now, I did a lot of things with my hands, but I wasn't, you know, those were just little things. Never robbed a bank and I never killed anyone. How could I be a sinner? Then he had me read a verse out of Matthew chapter 5. If you look upon a woman to lust after her, Jesus said, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. Jesus elevates it to the heart level. It is not just what we do with our hands. Our hearts condemn us. Is there anybody here that their heart does not condemn them? Our hearts condemn us all the time. They cry out that we are sinners. They cry out our need for a Savior. Our hearts condemn us. That's what he says here. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. You got my heart. It's exactly my heart. That's what he said about humankind. It says, verse 6 of Genesis chapter 6, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible is casting God in human-like terms. Some translations say, and the Lord repented that he had made man. Now we think of repentance as if I have done something wrong, I need to repent. It's not that type of repentance. Repentance means, actually, it means to turn 180 degrees. The Lord was sorry. The Lord turned from making man on earth. He was grieved in his heart. It is as if there's a parent or a set of parents and their son, whom they nurtured and grew up, becomes a murderer. That happens sometimes. 
Sometimes good homes, for some reason, you, you look at these parents that, that, that their child became a mass murderer. I mean, they're just so grieved in their heart to the point of saying, I wish I had never given birth to that child. And you can understand that. They had no idea that they were going to do that. God says man has become so corrupt and what he's doing is, is he's speaking about he's speaking about this judgment that's going to come. This, this repentance is this saying, I'm sorry that I've made man. It's, it's a turning in a response. It's a response that God depends on a response from humans. He deals with us according to our response. This is what I mean. If I respond to God, He responds to me in kind. If I respond to Him, to His gracious hand, with a heart of humbleness and repentance, a heart, then he responds to me back again. It's this mutual response back and forth between us. If by his extended hand I do not respond, then I start to move further and further away from God. C.S. Lewis says, the more we turn from God, the further away we move from him. The further away we move. He's fixed. He's always there. But when we do not respond to His love, we move further and further away from Him. And you actually see this type of response. So if we, if we turn, for example, to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, this beautiful psalm, says, How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So you see, immediately he's, he's separating a certain type of man from the vast majority of other people. Who are, who are sinners. It says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Now, listen to the contrast. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So here you have one man that is like a tree bearing fruit all the time, another man that is not responding to God's love, and he dries up, and he's like chaff which the wind drives away. I've seen this in the homes where you take one sibling and another sibling, they had the same home, the same parents, the same upbringing. One takes hold of the Word of God and walks according to it, the other does not. And their lives are total contrast. Because of the response to God's word, when we show forth a response to God, he shows a commensurate response back. When we respond to God's love, he responds back in kind. When we neglect his love, we separate ourselves from him. You see the same sort of thing in a passage that I read last week. This is in Second, in, in second Chronicles about the, the King Josiah, Second Chronicles. He says in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 27, it says, Because your heart, 2 Chronicles 34, 27, this is to King Josiah. This is the prophecy that came to him. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his word against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. 
And then he says, Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, so your eyes do not see all the evil which I am about to bring on the place and on its inhabitants. You see how God protected Josiah from seeing all the destruction? Why? He says, Because you responded to my word. It says, God repented. God turned away because humans had turned from him. But Noah, it says, had a heart for God. Noah walked with God. How can you have two people, same environment, same period of time? One responds to God's love, the other does not. When there is a response to God's love, you get right back from God in kind. Again and again. When we respond to His Word, we get it back from Him in kind many times over. Many times over. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, this is how God assesses his love, our love for him. How does he measure our, our love? Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's how he assesses love. It's not some ethereal thing. Does this young lady, does this young man keep my word? That's how I am going to assess whether they love me. That's not my words. That's what Jesus said. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father, my father will love him. The result of our expression of love to Him by keeping His Word is the Father of Jesus will love us. Remember what I've told you before. You want to find favor with a man? You want to find favor with a woman? Be kind to their children. Be kind to their children. You know, over the years, I, I, you know, once in a while people will say things and, and one day a, a young minister in a church, said something that was unkind about one of my children. To this day, I remember it. And not that he was wrong, but it was quite unkind. <laughs> to this day, I remember it. You want to gain somebody's favor? You be kind to their children, and they will always like you if you be kind to their children. Jesus said, you obey my word, my Father will love you. My Father will love him, it says. And we will come to him. That's Jesus and his Father. The Holy Spirit's already there. Jesus said, we will come to him. My Father and I will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus and his Father will make their abode with us. And that's why... When it says, when it says in Genesis chapter 6, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found favor in the midst of all of this turmoil where God is just saying, wow, the sin that has separated them from me. You want to separate yourself from God? Very easy. Start sinning. It'll drive you away from the Lord. The Lord is fixed. He hasn't gone anywhere. It'll drive you away from the Lord. 
Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The secret to doing this is obedience to him. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you don't know him, I encourage you to take of that free gift of Jesus Christ. To take of that free gift. And the other thing that, that, that I'm going to ask of you. So, so a lot of times it's, it's hard for people to witness to their friends. I'm asking you to do something. I'm not even asking you to witness to them. You don't have to. You want to see them come to the Lord? All I'm asking you to do is bring them to me on Sunday at lunch. That's it. It's all you got to do. If you really care about their salvation, if you don't care, let them go to hell. But if you care, I ask you to bring them to me. I will share with them. I'm not going to force you to do something you're not comfortable with. with. I'll share with them. And you watch. And you watch enough times you'll be able to start doing it. You bring them to me because I really care about this. We must have conversions here. We must have it. And they do come time after time after time. We get a conversion every week. Every week we get a conversion. Last week we had five conversions. Five. You bring them, I'll share with them. The Bible says in in Luke chapter 14, verse 23, And the master said to the slaves, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. You say, well, I don't want to be too pushy. Okay, you don't want to obey the word of God. Fine. You want to walk into disobedience to God? You will move further away from God. The Bible says, compel them to come in. Watch me when I start sharing the gospel with them. You'll think, wow, he's kind of pushy. You bet I am. Because their house is on fire and I'm going to drag them out of that house. They say, I'm watching a football game. Don't bother me. I say, your house is on fire, sir. No, no, look, I'm watching a football game. Leave me alone. What am I going to do? Okay, suit yourself. No, I'm going to grab him by his shoulders and pull him out of that house. I'm going to get his wife and his kids and pull them out too. He says, compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. Would you say, oh, two are so pushy. Look at him. He just dragged that man out of his house. No, you'd admire me. you say, what a hero. Bring them to me. Let me share with them. This is on you now. You have unbelieving friends. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. And then tell me that they're coming. Point them out to me so that I don't have to go around asking one person or another about their testimony to find who they are. Point them out to me so I just go right at them. So it doesn't take me long. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. We'll welcome them into the kingdom of God. Then I can go on to the next one. Bring them to me. We must have conversion work here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray for these young people. Father, I pray for the young women here that are dating and involved with young men that do not know you. Father, I pray that this day they would decide to walk according to your way and cut it off, lest they be like the Nephilim lest they destroy their own lives. And Father, I pray that you come upon the young men here who are dating young women who do not know you. Father, I pray that you cut that off, that they would walk according to your way. 
Father, I pray that you take these young people and bring them into conformity of your word, that they would walk according to your word and therefore experience what it is to have Jesus and his Father make their abode in their hearts. Father, for those here who do not know you, I pray that they would say this day, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner and I accept the free gift of Jesus Christ. Father, that they would be saved this day, I pray. Draw them to Jesus. Father, bring conversion work here. Father, give me children or I die. Give us conversion work here. Save the souls, I pray. Save their souls. And Lord, I commit this to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.